Thank you for joining us for this edition of the UCLA Anderson Forecast Direct. I'm Leo Feller, and today we're pleased to have with us Gregor Schubert, who recently joined the faculty of UCLA Anderson after finishing his PhD at Harvard. Gregor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Leo. So I wanted to talk to you about two of your research papers. Uh, the first one has to do with migration during the housing uh, boom and bust cycles that we've had uh, over the past several years. Can you tell us about this research paper and what you've done with it? Yeah, so the motivation for this paper is that there's large variation in house price cycles across different areas of the United States. So for instance, Las Vegas has really large up and down cycles while Topeka, Kansas maybe does not as much. And so at the same time, there are all these news items around the role that migrants from coastal California, for example, are playing in second tier cities in the US in terms of driving booms in local housing markets. And so this paper basically tries to quantify the degree to which local house prices are driven by these spillover migrants from high house price cities that are looking for more affordable housing elsewhere and thereby sort of driving up house prices in other cities. And so we see these cascading effects where um, house prices go up in some cities that drives out some migrants who look for more affordable housing elsewhere and then drives up house prices in those destination cities in turn. And so we see sort of house prices going up uh, uh, in a synchronized fashion in different cities that have these migration links to one another. We've seen this a lot during the pandemic, right? So we've seen this story about housing prices going up a lot more in places like Boise, Idaho, and Fresno, California, and the Nashvilles and Austins is, you know, a lot of people are leaving these expensive coastal cities. Do you have a sense of how you know, Zoom and the ability to work remotely, how this might change some of the patterns that, that you found so far in your research? Yes, uh, I think the, I think Zoom, I think so to some degree, I, th I think it will reinforce existing patterns. So pre where previously people were, for example, required to live in LA or San Francisco in order to draw a tech hub salary, uh, they're now able to take a tech hub salary while living in a much more affordable place. And so in some sense, that makes the overall package of some of the tech hubs much less attractive because now you can get the same salary with a lower housing cost somewhere else. So in some sense, it makes those housing markets then in relative terms more expensive if you compare them, for example, to more affordable living in Boise. And so as a result, in some sense, um, Zoom and the ability to work remotely leads to somewhat similar dynamics to just an increase in house prices in places like San Francisco. It makes those tech hubs less affordable and drives people to try to live somewhere else. And so as a result, we would actually see very similar migration patterns uh, to what we saw before the pandemic in that people move from expensive cities to less expensive cities. And I think actually in terms of the patterns that we have seen during the pandemic, that does seem to play out. So people seem to continue to move between uh, the same pairs of cities that they used to move to uh, before the pandemic, but maybe at an accelerated pace. So in some sense, this, this move towards remote work accelerated this move of some workers out of these expensive places into less expensive places. Um, but perhaps with the added wrinkle that where previously you were trying to move to a city that had some kind of industry that you could work in, now you're slightly less dependent on that because you can still retain that job in your old city. It doesn't really matter as much what the industry looks like in your new city. And so you're slightly more flexible there. And so maybe there's a slight shift in terms of where you can go to, but I, I don't think there's sort of major differences in terms of where people are moving. It's just the pandemic really sort of accelerated some of these shifts. 
So then we actually think about, you know, in urban economics, we think about productive amenities and consumption amenities, right? So production amenity being, you know, your city offers a good environment to, you know, establish a tech firm. And consumption amenities we think about as being, you know, beautiful nature, nice restaurants, right? Things that consumers will actually want to benefit from. Uh, as people are able to take their tech salaries and, and work in, in, you know, other groups of cities, do we really see, you know, to your point, the pattern of cities that benefit from this out-migration shifting to being the ones that offer, you know, slightly better quality of life rather than, you know, better productivity uh, for, for firms? I think that's a great point. Um, I think you're right that to some degree, we would expect the, the mix to shift a little bit towards people caring slightly more about amenities than about productivity. Um, to the degree that these old agglomeration benefits of having to be in the same place as the other white collar workers are no longer enforced to the same extent. It's actually surprising to me to what degree the main metropolitan areas that we would have expected to do well before the pandemic continue to do well to some degree in spite of sort of this dynamic. We still see New York City, Boston, LA attracting a lot of the young educated people and having rapidly increasing house prices. And I think part of that is actually due to the fact that these cities are not just productive hubs, but they are actually also amenity hubs to some degree. Like L LA and New York City are attractive cities to live in, in uh, even if they weren't also hubs for the technology sector and for finance. And so as a result, actually many workers who say, well, I don't have to live in San Francisco anymore. I'm not gonna choose to live in Topeka, Kansas. I'm gonna choose to live in New York City but because New York continues to have that attractive amenity bundle. So in the US, it actually, tends to be the case that those two tend to be go together to some degree, I think. So what role do local housing policies play in some of the patterns that we see in your research, right? So if Los Angeles, for example, had more permissive housing policies and made it easier to build additional housing, how would that change some of your findings? Yeah, I think you hit a sort of a, on, a, on a key variable there. I think that the main reason why we see these migration spillovers between cities is that when one city becomes really attractive and productive, it pulls in high-income workers of the local industries that are booming. And because cities don't accommodate additional employment with enough new housing, for instance, LA has very restrictive housing uh, policies and a lot of low-density areas that just don't build enough housing. Uh, because of that, it becomes very zero-sum. So when new high-income workers move in, other workers have to move out. And the way that the market ends up clearing is through rapidly growing house prices that end up pushing some workers out. And those then end up migrating to other cities, and that leads to these spillover house price effects, driving up house prices in Boise, Las Vegas, Phoenix, and so on in these connected cities. If LA, for instance, were building enough housing and actually accommodated all these inflowing workers by just putting up large multifamily buildings, for example, um, instead of sort of making it very hard to build anything beyond a certain level of density, then you'd actually see smaller increase in house prices. A lot of these incoming workers wouldn't displace existing residents. Um, and you just see LA grow up in size and overall density rather than sort of having this zero sum dynamic where some workers get replaced by others. And so I think, the, I, I think if LA was more permissive, you'd see a softening of this migration effect where you just, you wouldn't need migration in order to balance the scales and get, all the, get the lower income workers from, from your city to find more affordable housing elsewhere. They could just find affordable housing in the in in LA, for instance, by moving to a different neighborhood or just by building enough housing such that prices don't even go up in the first place. 
but you touched upon this a little bit, but is there a difference between the types of individuals who are local, right? So we're talking about maybe, you know, high income, uh, highly educated tech workers moving in, lower income, perhaps lower education workers moving out. You have a sense of who are the people who are, you know, differentially mobile uh, because of some kind of economic, you know, either a positive shock or a negative shock. Um, yeah, so, so in my research, I've looked a little bit at who these people are who are moving between cities. And I think the, the first thing that was surprising to me was that while people always have this mental image of sort of retirees moving to Florida, maybe all these moves to second tier cities are really driven by people retiring, um, that ends up not being a major driver of overall migration dynamics. And the reason is just that retirees in the US just aren't that mobile. So people of retirement age end up making up less than about 10% of all the moves between cities because older people just don't move as much as younger people. And so what's really going on instead is that the main dynamics tend to be driven by college educated workers of working age replacing non-college educated workers of working age. And so I find this pattern where over the last 20 years or so, college educated workers have moved from less expensive cities to more expensive cities and non-college educated workers have sort of moved in the opposite direction where they've moved from more expensive cities to cheaper cities in general. And so you see this pattern even more extremely in highly housing supply constrained cities. So the more housing supply constrained a city is, the more zero sum this dynamic becomes where large inflows of college educated workers tend to be associated with large outflows of non-college educated workers. And so that tends to be sort of the, the flow patterns that are happening. Oh, so that's really interesting. So, you know, especially during the recovery from the pandemic, we heard a lot of discussion about labor shortages, especially in places like, you know, Huntington Beach and, uh, you know, parts of San Diego, parts of Los Angeles. Um, you know, what you're suggesting is that part of the reason that we're experiencing some of these labor shortages is that these demographic migration shifts that have happened have meant that higher income workers have moved in. There hasn't been more housing built, so that has also displaced lower income workers. And so we find a shortage of, you know, service sector workers uh, in a lot of these, you know, restrictive housing policy cities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the, to some degree, the shortage of lower income service sector workers is somewhat homegrown in place like LA, because in order to attract someone to, for instance, work in a restaurant, you have to compensate them, not just for uh, the usual sort of effort of, of working there, but you also have to pay them to be able to live in LA. And so that might mean compensating them for uh, taking upon themselves a really long commute in order to get to their place of employment or paying the exorbitant um, the rents that it would require to live anywhere close to where the main economic areas are in, the, in a city like LA. And so in, because we don't build enough housing, um, you need to compensate those low income workers a lot more um, in order to attract them to service sector jobs. And so for some of them, that might mean that they're just not willing at all to live in, to live in those areas and that leads them to a shortage of workers, or it might mean escalating salaries at the lower end of the income scale, which we've seen in recent years. So turning now to a different topic, you have another paper looking at employer concentration and how this affects wages. So this is really a hot topic right now when we think about competition and antitrust policy, uh, about mergers and companies becoming larger and larger and becoming essentially monopsonist uh, you know, employers. Um, can you tell us about this paper? What, if, what have you found so far? Yeah, so this is joint work with Anna Stansbury at MIT and Bloody Tusca at Burning Glass Technologies. And so together with my co-authors, in this paper, 
we look at this important policy concern around the power that big employers are have over their employees' wages. So there's an important concern that if there are few large employers in your local area and in your particular labor market, then they can push your wages down because you just don't have a lot of bargaining power. And this concern is now starting to play a role in antitrust where, um, where policymakers are considering whether or not they should uh, evaluate the impact on local labor markets when they're looking at the, a merger between two firms. And so what we do in this paper is we, we look at whether or not existing literature actually defines labor markets the right way. And then we propose a new way of, of thinking about labor markets in this context. So one big issue is that if you're, for instance, a barista, uh, we could look just at labor markets for baristas in your local area and try to figure out whether somehow they're concentrated and those employers might have, uh, bar might have market power over you. But in, in practice, Baristas may be very likely to move into becoming waiters or taking on other service sector jobs. And so really their, their labor market is much broader than just the narrow occupation of baristas. And so in, when we want to think about their overall labor market power and their, the options that they have, we really want to be evaluating all the jobs that they're likely to move into. And that might be part of their choice set when they're thinking about, hey, my employer is pushing down my wages, what else could I be doing? And do I have a lot of bargaining power as a result of that? And so we use uh, resumes of workers where we can see them move around between occupations to infer which occupations are very mobile and which ones are not, and what occupations people are likely to move between, and then use this, these movement patterns to define uh, for each occupation what sort of its labor market looks like in terms of the the cloud of things they might be likely to move into and what then the bargaining power of employers is in that cloud of po possible jobs and then we, we use this sort of new measure of labor markets to um, estimate what the effect of employer concentration on wages is and what we end up finding is that the it is the case that highly concentrated labor markets where there are very few employers in your in your cloud of possible jobs do end up having lower wages on average. Um, but this mobility distinction really matters. So the, the effects that your employer can have on your wages um, are three times as large for the occupations that are not very mobile. So they're sort of stuck in place and have to take whatever their employer offers them uh, relative to the occupations that are highly mobile. So their the current occupation is really not a good measure of how constrained they are uh, by their current employer. So if workers are mobile, are very mobile, they tend to have, see much smaller impacts of their employer, of, uh, of, of employers being very concentrated. So that's interesting because we actually saw during this pandemic recovery, a lot of mobility across sectors, right? So we had workers who had tended to work in the restaurant industry, suddenly working in transportation and logistics because that's where there was a lot of demand, right? And that's also where wages end up being, you know, quite a bit higher and that has actually pulled up wages in, uh, in the restaurant services as well. Um, so when we think about, for example, something like an Amazon distribution center opening up in a local economy, right? We, uh, we, we actually hear a lot of criticism of, uh, you know, Amazon for being this big employer in certain areas and really dictating the labor market in certain areas. Um, but we also have seen evidence that, you know, Amazon comes in, they pay slightly higher wages than the local labor market averages for a lot of the, you know, the, the more suburban or remote area that they're going into, uh, and that this tends to affect the local economy and hiring in the local economy. So what have you found in the sense of, you know, is it, does it depend on the concentration of the employer? Does it depend on who the employer is? 
you know, how does that actually vary with the conditions of the local, local labor market where these employers are entering? Yeah, so I think Amazon is a great example of sort of thinking through the, these dynamics. So I think that um, in general, I think the literature, both our research and research with other research that other people have done recently suggests that when Amazon enters local labor markets, they actually push up wages to some degree because um, for other local employers, Amazon represents competition for their workers, right? And so Amazon in all the distribution centers ended up setting a, a, a wage floor that was above the local minimum wage. And that as a result kind of represents a, um, then an effective wage floor for other local employers because if you're if your workers can always choose to go to Amazon and get $15 an hour, you better offer them $15 an hour as well. Otherwise they're gonna they're gonna leave. And so as a result, Amazon actually ended up pulling up wages uh, in local labor markets um, when they entered. The important thing to consider though is that perhaps in the long run, if Amazon drives other local businesses out of the market, so that smaller employers just don't exist anymore and don't provide any other competition, perhaps in the long run, then that local concentration where everyone ends up working for Amazon or one of very few employers, maybe that then in the long run will lower, will lower wage growth because Amazon will eventually use that market power in order to keep wages capped at the local market. So they might not grow above a certain level. Um, but those dynamic effects in the long run are sort of hard to study because we haven't seen them yet. Um, it does seem that in the short run, these positive effects sort of outweigh where Amazon pulls up local wages uh, by providing uh, an, a new option for local workers. And actually that, that brings me to my next question is have we seen this you know, in either certain markets in certain sectors where greater employer concentration has been slowing down wage growth, right? Have we started to see, you know, maybe perhaps a critical threshold of concentration in at least certain markets or certain sectors? Yep. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely see this. So in, in, our, in, our, in our paper, we show that probably on average around 10% of workers in the U.S. Um, may see something like 2% lower wages as a result of this employer concentration effect. So their wages would be 2% higher if um, employers were perfectly competing for their services. Um, and this particularly affects uh, service sector occupations that are either require some kind of licensing or where there's uh, usually a lot of concentration on the employer side. And so people are not very mobile in, um, in their local markets. And so for example, among pharmacists or aircraft mechanics, uh, you do seem to see um, very little mobility across different occupations because they're these licensed professions and there don't tend to be that many uh, local employment options that have good use for their skills. And so as a result, they're sort of stuck with their employer and maybe getting a lower wage than they would otherwise deserve because of this lack of mobility uh, interacting with, with concentration of their local employment. Um, however, we have to distinguish this cross-sectional effect where in the cross-section, it does seem pretty clear, both from our study and from other studies, that concentration is associated with lower wages from the effect over time. So an important question that often comes up is, well, does this explain a decline in the labor share or lower wages over time in the U.S.? And there, the answer seems to be no, because the um, while concentration among firms at the national level has gone up, at a local labor market level, overall concentration among employers seems to have been declining over time. So while in the cross-section we have this negative result, um, given that concentration has gone down over time in a lot of local labor markets, because more national firms are competing in each local market, um, that would suggest actually suggest that uh, that should have an 
an increasing effect on, on local wages. And so we probably can't explain longer run declines in the labor share or in wages uh, using this concentration effect. It's more important for explaining cross-sectional differences within a time period. You have a sense about how consumers are affected, right? So uh, if we have a lot more employer concentration, on the one hand, that might mean that, you know, they might be able to force wages to be a little bit lower than they would otherwise be, at least in specific sectors or specific markets. Do you have a sense on whether or not they pass this on to consumers as, as cost savings or whether or not they, you know, retain this as higher profits? Uh, it's probably hard to make general statements about this. So we usually tend to think of these as sort of two separate parts of the, of the puzzle where firms have market power in the output markets, where they're selling their products, where they're competing with other firms on, on the price that they're charging. And then in input markets, uh, for instance, for labor, where they're competing with other firms on the price that they're paying uh, to their to their inputs. This could be materials as well, not just labor. And so if output markets are competitive so that firms are sort of constrained in, in what they can charge because either they're trading international markets or there are other firms in the market um, that are pegging the price at a certain level, then the firm really can't pass any of their cost changes on to prices. They have to, they have to set the price at whatever it needs to be in order for them to sell anything in the market. And so even if they have monopsony power, um, even if their monopsony power declines and they have to pay higher wages to their workers, they'll just have to swallow that increase in cost and lower their own profits because they're sort of constrained on the product market side. However, if firms do have some market power on the product market side, then they might be able to pass some of those higher labor costs on to higher prices. Um, and that will usually go along with a reduction in their output. So they sort of produce less at a higher price instead of, instead of uh, producing larger amounts at a lower price. Um, in order to avoid having to pay so much to workers. And, but at the end of the day, these dynamics are actually kind of complicated. So because one firm ends up reducing its output, that may then lead to entry of other firms in the long run. And so I'd actually say this is sort of at the forefront of where the research is at right now. There's a lot of interesting research going on on the interaction between market power and consumer markets and in labor markets. And I don't think we have a conclusive answer yet to what degree this matters empirically and how these two things interact, but there's definitely some interaction there if output markets are uncompetitive. Fantastic. Well, Gregory, thank you so much. Fascinating discussion. And we are thrilled to have you uh, at UCLA, a fantastic addition to the team. Uh, so thank you very much for taking the time for, for doing this podcast and for you know, some of your very insightful research. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.